five qualities of effective prayer. Now, when you come to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 3, as I mentioned earlier, it's the final chapter of the book. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on is essentially this. The tone turns very much pastoral in nature. Not that it hasn't been before, but you know that a lot of 2 Thessalonians has been taken up to this point with things that have to do with the last times and these types of things. And in a sense, they're pastoral because Paul brings them up because he's got to deal with a situation in the church there where people have been sort of, well, potentially bamboozled, right? Either by an epistle that purported to be from Paul or uh, by some kind of a prophetic utterance that was really not of the Lord, but uh, they had information about the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord had already come. That got them all worked up and challenged. So it's certainly possible for us to view even all of the material that were given there along the lines of last things, to view that in a pastoral sense. But you'll notice when you get to verse number one, it says, finally, brethren. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul's going to be done or that the writer is going to be done within two or three verses. It just means that now his attention particularly focuses on those things that are a great burden on his heart that have to be taken care of before he can actually close the letter. Now, I would point out to you something about this. Um, you have in this, when you, if you read this chapter and you analyze it, you have prayer and you have admonition. And those are certainly pastoral functions, prayer and admonition. In fact, it's rather interesting that prayer begins the chapter, prayer ends the chapter. So tonight, this particular paragraph focuses on prayer. And then when we end up, you have another focus on prayer. So this evening, I want to talk about prayer. And as you see there in the title, what I want to talk about is five qualities of effective prayer. I can't speak to you, but that's something that interests me. I know that prayer is God's will. I know that it's a privilege, but I also know that prayer is something that God wants me to do. It's part of his plan. It's part of his will. Well, if I'm going to spend time in prayer, then I, I would like for that to be effective. And I feel so often, can you identify with this? I feel so often that I, I just bumble around, uh, repeat the same things, lose my train of thought. I don't know. Maybe that's part of getting older. But I just, I feel sometimes like I'm going to pray and I have two left shoes on. Other times I feel like I'm praying and, man, it's just like lickety-whiz. You know, you go through the whole thing and, and, and whatever it is that God is, he just keeps burdening you. He keeps taking you in certain directions. You pray about those things. You interact with the Lord. But I would really like to be more effective in my prayer life. I'm sure you would be too. So let's look at a couple things together this evening. In fact, five of them. First of all, effective prayer is a priority. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, you notice what I've already pointed out. This begins with prayer. This is a rather significant point because Paul really has a heavy matter on his heart that he has to get to. That really kind of, if you look at it by waiting, waiting, I'm not talking about W-A-I-T-I-N-G, I'm talking about like wait like you see on a scale like those bad numbers you see when you go to the doctor's office. But if you look at this chapter by waiting, okay, well, it's obvious you have in verses 1 through 5, it's dedicated over to prayer. Look down at the end. Prayer begins again in verse number 16. So what do you have between? You have verses 6 through 15. So by waiting, what's obviously the, the critical thing in this chapter? Well, it's whatever, it's, it's whatever comprises the admonition. It's what Paul has to deal with, and I'll tell you what that is. It's the loafers. I, I like to call them the loafers. Lots of times, I think maybe even here, we have either idle or idlers, but 
Uh, this, this unfortunately was not a new topic in the Thessalonian church. And if you look back, you would have hoped that maybe this would have been taken care of. But go back to chapter 4, first, the first letter for a moment, and look there in verse number 11, and you'll see that this is the first time we find out about this. But Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. So the as we instructed you is a bit of a hint, all right? Paul encountered some situations at Thessalonica that were not exactly as they should have been in respect to how, well, we, today we would call it a work ethic. seems to be vanishing, but um, that's maybe what we would refer to it as. And then when you get down into chapter 5, same uh, First Thessalonians, but verse number 14, you find another reference to it. So look down there, and he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle." All right, and he goes on in the verse. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Well, you would hope that that would sort of make an end of it because he's already said he encountered the problem when he was there. He said he instructed them concerning it. But now, several short months later, and it's generally felt that Paul wrote Second Thessalonians from Corinth, and if you trace this in the book of Acts, he was at Thessalonica, from which he had to leave, and he went to Corinth after he went to Athens. So you have Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. So generally speaking, uh, between these two letters, maybe three months, something like that. I mean, this is the best estimate that we can get. Well, here three months later, this problem is still, is still going on there, and apparently the people who took the first letter brought back word to Paul again that problems were still going on there. Perhaps even Timothy, who had been dispatched by Paul when Paul had to leave suddenly and sent Timothy back, who rejoined Paul at Athens, perhaps he even brought that word. But now Paul's got to deal with this again. Folks, you know, this is delicate. And sometimes admonition becomes delicate. It doesn't excuse us from doing it where it's appropriate to do. I mean, would you, have, would you like to have to get up and address a bunch of people about being lazy bums? Well, really, I mean, we can use that parlance because I don't think we have that in here, and so it's easy for us to say, oh, hey. but I mean, think about that for a minute. Would you like to have to get up and address a subject so delicate as that? And Paul has this on his heart. It has to be dealt with before he can close this second letter. The Spirit of God is leading him to do this. Here's my point. Before, before Paul gets into anything like that, what's his burden? It's to pray. That, to me, is hugely instructive. Because I think about going about ministry, which is you know, what I've done for all my adult life. And I think about how I've tried to practice ministry, and I, I certainly haven't been perfect at it. But one of the great concerns I always had, and one of the great concerns I think we still should have, is that so many people just seem to, to bumble into ministry and do ministry, and they're, they really haven't given adequate time to prepare their hearts, to pray, and then you have these seasons when, well, many times, of course, you, you know, maybe you have a, a, a delicate meeting. Maybe you have a delicate subject you have to, to inform the congregation. Maybe you have a difficult matter that you have to deal with. The point is, have you prayed about this or you just sort of bumble in? To me, it gives a tremendous confidence when I have devoted prayer to the things that I know are important that God has given me to do. 
And this is, this is really the example of Paul. So if we're interested in effective prayer, and we think we can learn something from the Apostle Paul about what effective prayer is, then here you have an example because it's a priority to Paul. It's got to be done. Prayer has to happen before delicate matters, or any matters for that matter of ministry, are undertaken. So the problem of the idol we mentioned, and then Paul uh, burdened to pray before he undertakes with those things, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of interesting to note that prayer brackets this section, verses 1 through 5, and then at the end, uh, the verses that we have there, several verses at the end, they bracket this, this section where you have this admonition taking place. I read an interesting thing about William Booth. William Booth had a ministry, of course. I, I know everybody's familiar with the Salvation Army, but it's worth paying a little more attention than just getting that far. It's worth knowing a little something about the ministry that he had in London. And, you know, typically when you do things like this that aren't being done by other people, uh, you often find that you have not the reaction of support that you thought you would get. I mean, you would think that someone who decided that it was really important to reach London's poor, people who had otherwise no interest shown, no real, not a lot of any gospel testimony who perhaps weren't even wor welcomed in, in other venues of worship, you'd think that you'd be glad for that. I, I know in our, in our ministry when we had missionaries who went to different places, and I think, man, I am so glad God's called them to do that. That isn't something that I would relish doing. We had two uh, maximum security prisons in our town, and every time I'd go there with a volunteer group or something like that to have a service. I love to preach in there because those, a lot of those guys love to hear preaching. I mean, it was nothing. You could preach for an hour and they didn't bat an eye. And, but, you know, it was awfully nice to walk out of that place. And we also had the county jail there, so there's a lot of incarceration going on. But I would go to the county jail a lot of the time once a month. And you'd go in there, you know, they were a little bit more low-key in that county jail than you can imagine going into the maximum security prisons, but you'd still have to, you know, give over your keys and, and all that kind of thing and empty your pockets and whatever, but they got to know you. They weren't real concerned, and, and you'd go in there. And when you got to a certain place, I, this is no exaggeration, bang, a huge door with, I mean, steel door, yay thick, with big locks on it would close, and there's just something of a finality about that. I just think, what would it be like to be an inmate and hear that, knowing that it wasn't going to open up in an hour? But we prayed. Pray about those things, and pray about the ministry that God has given us to have. But anyway, back to Booth for a minute. So, he, unfortunately, he encountered opposition. He encountered religious opposition from all places. He encountered religious op opposition and he also encountered government opposition. Well, you know, occasionally, and nothing's changed, folks. You know, there'd be gossipy, critical, unkind articles that would be in the newspaper. And William Booth's son, Bramall, would bring him these articles when they happened for him to look at. And William Booth always came back with something just about like this. He said, Bramall, 50 years hence, it will matter very little how these people treated us. It will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. 
And I think that relates to prayer as well. I think to myself, you know, so much of what we spend our time with, so much of what we do that we think is so important, I really wonder how much of that will matter, not as much, but prayer will matter a great deal. To me, this is convicting because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to give an account of how we spend our time. And if we get up there, well, you know, Lord, I was out 40 hours a week during this or whatever, but did you pray? Son, did you pray? Well, I, Lord, I was awful busy. I was doing your work. Did you pray? Prayer is a priority, and Paul certainly teaches us that. Let's move on to the next thing. Secondly, we find that prayer involves humility. Maybe you say to yourself, hmm, don't necessarily know that I see that thought jump out at me. Well, it jumps out to me. And I'll tell you why, because Paul's asking for prayer for himself. And I think to myself, well, wow. I mean, it says in the very beginning verse, finally, brothers, pray for us. And I think sometimes maybe we have a little bit of a tendency to regard some of the Bible greats, and certainly the Apostle Paul is that. If nothing else, he's that. One of the Bible greats. I think sometimes we have a tendency to set them up here on these pedestals and to figure that, well, you know, they were super saints. And we give ourselves a little bit of a, an excuse and a little bit of an opportunity to sort of bow out because we say, well, you know, I, I'm not in Paul's class. Well, I'm certainly not in Paul's class, but I do know this. I'm both have the same flesh. Both have the same weaknesses. There's no temptation taken, you, Paul says in another place, but such as is common to man. And Paul struggled with these things. If you read Paul carefully, you can find certain things that you can identify that were troublesome to him, nettlesome to him. Well, the fact that he asks for prayer to me is a sign of humility because, you know, there's some folks that just, for whatever reason, they just can't, they can't get over that. They just, oh, they might kind of, well, um, pray. But Paul prays and he, and he asks for prayer. And look, look at the things that he's talking about here. Because I want to make a point with this. He says, pray that the Lord, word of the Lord may speed. Um, this is kind of interesting. The old King James translation of this, the word of the Lord may have free course. Here it says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. You know what it literally is in the original? that the word of the Lord may go on running. That's, that's really what it is. So if you think of an image of someone running, what, what do you want it to do? Well, you want it to go on running ahead. And Paul says, just like with you. Well, think about this for a moment. He came to Thessalonica. He was probably there only maybe three weeks because he went into the Sabbath and reasoned with them three Sabbath days Luke tells us in Acts. Shortly after this, he had to leave. So he was there roughly three weeks. And in spite of all of the opposition and difficulties that he encountered in that place, that's exactly what happened. There were these striking conversions. There were people who were saved in the synagogue, but there were a great multitude of the devout Greeks. Now, when Luke says a great multitude, I don't know what that means. But it means a lot. So in spite of of these crazy Jews and all of the opposition that they raised, the word of the Lord ran ahead in that place. Now, Paul asked for prayer for himself. He says, you can think of how it was when I came to your place. Look what God did. Look how he honored his word. And, and I, I want you to pray that the Lord will go on doing that in my life and in my ministry. 
you could also maybe envision, if you think of somebody running, you know what, you want a clear level lane to run in. You don't want unlevel ground, and you certainly don't want logs, and you know, that, that, that's always the hunter's bane. You know, you're, you're walking into the woods, it's, it's still dark because you're, you're going in early. And you may be walking along a path that you've walked along any number of times, but you, know, you really don't want to trip especially with a backpack and a rifle and who knows what else other kind of gear you've got. You want a, a level path. You don't want to mess up and make a bunch of noise. Even if you step on something that's only yay thick and it makes a big loud crack, in the morning woods like that, it just sounds like a firecracker just went off. You don't want to do that. And I've got this image in my mind. You, do you, did you see this video? I don't see how you could possibly have missed this really unless you just have decided to totally disengage. Might not be a bad idea. But the Tour de France, and the thing's been played over and over again. You know, this woman is out there like, here I am, see me. And she's got this message, like, was it for somebody in her family or something like that? But she, she positioned herself just so, so that she knew the camera would catch this. And it's like she's oblivious. Here comes this huge mass of these, these bike riders. And if you watch this, and the guy runs into her, and it's just like, huh? And they just like, tons of them go down. Then she flees. Then she flees the country. And they finally got her. I was kind of glad, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I'm not real impressed with that kind of conduct. But that's uh, the power of obstacles. And Paul was certainly well familiar with obstacles. So he's he's wanting this. He's also saying something else. He wants to be de- delivered from unreasonable, as the King James translates, or as we have here, wicked and evil men. Now this word that that. The King James translates unreasonable. This is kind of interesting because it literally is a word in Greek that means out of place. You don't realize how bad that is until you get a, a joint or a bone or something like that out of place. I don't know how many people here have ever dislocated a shoulder. I haven't, but I know it's extremely painful. It's out of place. But when you think of the figurative sense in which Paul is using that, someone who's out of place is somebody who's not observing typical decorum. In fact, not only just not observing typical decorum, but in our parlance, we might say something like this. I'm talking about people who are over the top. I'm talking about people who are off the charts. Or we could even say bad actors. You know why there are bad actors out there? Wicked and evil men. The word that's translated evil is, uh, is that the second word, evil? Whichever one is the second word is, is the word malicious. In Greek, it's paneros. If you put the article with paneros, you have the evil one. And that's, in fact, what happens as you get down a couple of, of uh, verses here. At the end of verse number three, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's why there are bad actors, folks. Not just because people are fallen. They are that. But why there are bad actors is because you have the malicious one, Satan is a malicious being. He is the ultimate bad actor. And he is stirring these people up so that the work of the Lord might be opposed and so that the word of the Lord might not have free course. That's what's going on. So let's drill this down now. I I took some time because I didn't want to just gloss over it without giving some proper explanation for it. But let's drill down. So what, what does all this really boil down to? He's asking for prayer for himself, but what's he concerned about? 
He's concerned about the ministry. In fact, that's what he says, that the word of the Lord may run ahead and be honored. Not sure exactly why the translators here chose honored. It's fine. It's, it's a perfectly valid translation, but it's the typical word in Greek, doxazo, that means to glorify. And I'm thinking, you know, that's a model of ministry that we really need to follow. It's, 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 this, is, this is humility that's speaking here. Not only that Paul would ask for prayer for himself, but that his whole focus in the prayer is not self-focus, it's ministry focus. He's concerned that God is glorified. I know a lot of you can probably identify this. I know I, I certainly lived through the era of, I'm trying to think of a tactful way to put it, I guess maybe you could say preachers who were over, overly impressed with themselves. And you sometimes wondered whether or not when they came out to preach it was a message or a performance. I've gone to places before, not to attend services, but for other where we were using a facility for a meeting. We were in a particular place. I'm not going to get specific on this, but a guy came up and said, you know, their normal practice here is that when the pastor comes out on Sunday morning to the platform, they all, they all clap. They all give him a round of applause. Well, I, I can't judge people's hearts. I couldn't handle that. That to me is not, it's just not appropriate for me. I, I, I don't want that. I like a, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm like you. It really helps for somebody once in a while to give you a, a pat on the back or to send you a note or a kind word of encouragement. People clapping? I think that happened once in the whole time that I was at the church 29 plus years. That was a special occasion. That was when I'd been there 20 years and they, they threw a big thing that they totally surprised me. I walked in the church and they, they did that then. That's the only other, that's, I could accept that. I understood what the deal was. Paul's not, Paul's not seeking self-glory. He's not a self-seeking individual. He wants God to be glorified through his ministry. So this is the voice of humility speaking. And I like this because sometimes we really struggle with this whole thing of asking for prayer. Paul asks for prayer for himself more specifically as ministry, his chief focus as ministry, not himself. And he wasn't too proud to ask for prayer. In fact, if you look at back at 1 Thessalonians 5.25, he had already done this as he closes out 1 Thessalonians, brothers, pray for us, he says. And now he's reiterating that. Pray for us, that the word of the Lord, and he goes on and he gives those requests. I had a laugh the other day. I was, I was reading something, and it said, women, women say this, and they laugh about it, that men will drive around for an hour lost rather than stop and ask for directions. And I, you ladies would have to say whether that's true or not, but I, I can sort of get the point of that. Sometimes we're just too proud to ask. Paul isn't. Paul says, pray for us. We need, we need your prayers. So let's come to the third thing. Uh, Let's, let's go past this. I, I have several references there. Well, we'll read Colossians 4.3, but just to show you, this is not exactly an isolated case. Paul's doing this over and over again. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So there was a reference there in, in Ephesians. We skipped past. There's a, a longer reference in 1 uh, Corinthians. This is not uncommon in Paul. He's always asking for prayer. It's an evidence, I think, of humility. So then we need to look at the next point and notice that effective prayer is specific. Now, 
we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because we already lay a lot of this groundwork. But in verses 1 and 2, do you notice that Paul doesn't just say there, pray for my ministry. I mean, you could do that. But Paul doesn't just say, pray for my ministry. He says, no, he says, pray that the word of the Lord may run ahead and be honored. Pray that we will be delivered from wicked and evil men. I mean, he gives the specifics. And then when he, he drops down and he, and he, and he wants to uh, get into prayer for the Thessalonians themselves, verse number 5, notice when it shifts to praying for them, again, he's specific. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, why does he ask for those things for them? Because, you know, the love of God, whether you think about it as objective, that is to say God is the object of our love, or you think of it as subjective, that is to say it's the love of God himself for us, it's a prime motivation in Christian living. John said it in his epistle. He said, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. The the knowledge of the fact that God has such overwhelming love for me, and then that bleeds over into an obviously weaker response on my part of love for God, that's a constraining thing. Paul said that. The love of Christ constraineth us. So this is a, this is a well-chosen thing to pray for them because he's going to be asking them shortly in this admonition section to do some things. So he reminds them of what the real motivation in doing in obedience is. It's the love of God. And also, sometimes when you're dealing with a cranky problem, a problem that just seems to be recurring, remember I explained this had already been there. You would have hoped it would have been dealt with, but it's not. It's back. He has to deal with it again. And so if you look over in chapter 3, a little bit later in the, in the going, look at verse 13. He says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Well, you know, when you have to kind of deal with recurrent problems, and there are other reasons too, sometimes it's really easy to become discouraged. And Paul knows this. He told the Galatians, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Paul knows this, and so he says the steadfastness of Christ. May, may the Lord direct your hearts not only into the love of God, but into the steadfastness of Christ, because both are prime considerations in our life for the Lord and prime considerations as he thinks about what he needs to tell them and uh, what lies ahead. So sometimes it's true. Sometimes we have to be general. Is it, do you always have to be specific? Well, what if you don't know what to pray for specifically? I find myself in that situation all the time. I know there's a situation. I know there's a need. I don't know enough about it to pray intelligently. But I know what it says in Romans chapter 8. And I, I tell you, folks, in my prayers, I think I claim this. I'm not so sure that I don't claim this about as much as I claim anything, any promise, any direction that I have in the Bible concerning prayer, it says, Likewise also the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now that's me half the time. How about you? But it says the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And I take such solace in that because sometimes we just don't know. It's not your fault when you don't know. But there's a difference between that and using I don't know for an excuse. Like, well, Lord, bless the missionaries. 
Could you do better? Well, yeah, if you, le- if you read the prayer letters. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. Or, you know, I really became burdened about this because, like community, our church had a very aggressive missions program. And when I got there, I saw that my predecessor had been had done a tremendous job in this area. The, the church was well endowed with, a, with a, a, a generous missionary family, generous support and all those things. And so I thought, well, I don't have to do that. But I do have to do something. So, Lord, what is it? Because I figured, well, I'm here to do something. I didn't know what it was. And so I started praying about that. And the burden that the Lord put on my heart was, well, you need to go visit these people. And I started doing that. And then I not only did it, but I tried to interest other people in the church in doing it. And I had some measure of success with that. And then I started taking teens on missions trips. Tell you something, folks. Here's what that does for you. I mean, whether you can actually physically go visit a missionary or not, technology today allows us to get there and figure out a lot of this stuff. But it transformed my prayer life for these people. When I had been there and seen it, when I had seen what they were up against, what their situations were, that I could pray for them specifically. I felt like I walked away from my prayer time, that my time was well spent. I really invested something on behalf of these people that was honoring to Christ and was helpful to them. I like the way one preacher summarized the passage in the Gospels where it talks about the the two blind men. He said... Two blind men heard Jesus was passing by. Lord, have mercy on us, they cried. Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, open our eyes, they replied. Only then, Jesus healed their sight. I thought about that. You know, that is good. (laughs) What is it you want me to do for you? So Paul is a specific prayer. Let's look at something else. Effective prayer is confident. Isn't this what James tells us? But let him ask in what? Can you finish it? But let him ask in faith. So I didn't look to see what the ESV wording is, sorry. But it's probably going to be awfully close to that. Let him ask in faith. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. We need to pray in a believing manner. And twice Paul expresses this confidence in God's faithfulness. This is exactly what he says. Look at the beginning of verse number 3. But the Lord is faithful. Now, do you believe that when you go to God in prayer? God is faithful because that may be a general statement, but that's hugely encouraging to know that God is faithful. Because where are you going to go, and this is to anticipate something that we'll get to in just a few sentences, but where are you going to go to build this confidence? You're going to go to God's Word. You're going to find God's promises. Isn't it wonderful to know when you're in some trial, when you're in some problem, you're in some situation of distress, you go to prayer knowing God is faithful. So he does this, and then... He talks about confidence, the ex- that actual word is used, verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. He doesn't so much have confidence in them as much as he has confidence in the Lord about them. Do you see the, the difference? 
There are obviously some people there that didn't bear much confidence because they were still idle. But Paul has confidence in the Lord. He has confidence as he prays. He has confidence as he does ministry work. And, you know, folks, I tell you, whenever I have faced difficult situations, whether they were in ministry or just in my personal life, the thing that was always on my heart was, well, God is faithful. I didn't ask for this. God put me here. And I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Now, you know, there's a balance to that. That's not, that's not working up some head of steam of energy in the flesh. The balance to that is what Jesus told the disciples when he said, for without me you can do nothing. So on the one hand, I've got to know that because that's the appropriate humility. I've got to know in my own strength I can't do this. And if I do do it because... I've done it so long that I can do it just out of a routine. It's not going to amount to hill of beans. It has to have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit accompany it or it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. And I took great comfort in that. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I, that's another one I, I claim all the time. I don't, don't know about you, but twice Paul expresses this. See, because effective prayer is believing prayer. And as I said to anticipate things a moment ago, how is it exactly that we acquire believing prayer? Because so many times we realize that's a weak spot for us. We, we seem to not always be very strong in our faith, right? And this is kind of a weak spot for us. How is it that we grow this kind of a belief? Well, look at this passage, and we won't take a lot of time with it, but this is a passage that fits very well with the situation of the cursing of the fig tree which you have to read both the gospel accounts in order to figure out what's going on, that it's actually on the day before what we're reading here. And it actually says that, that Jesus pronounces this curse. They come back the next morning, Tuesday morning of Passion Week, on their way to the temple. And this has just been yesterday, not a full 24 hours, that Jesus pronounced this curse. And they walk by this thing and it's like, I mean, it's like mega dead. And Peter looks at that thing, and this is where we pick up the story. They passed by early in the morning and saw the, it was withered away from its roots. Not just a few. You know, when something usually begins to die, you usually see a few of the leaves at the top and then some of the branches. And this thing's dead from the ground up. I mean, it's dead, dead. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said, have faith in God. There it is, folks. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. So what is this? Is this some kind of blank check that you can just walk out here and say to Paris Mountain, out of my way? You might feel like it if you've got to walk up it. But no, you don't do that because that's obviously not something that God placed there as an intentional obstacle so that you would be forced to pray to him about that because you can't move forward and you can't accomplish the thing that God has given you in his will to do because of this obstacle. There's a difference between just going around and throwing the power of prayer around recklessly, which God never intended it to be, and that's not what this is teaching. Pastor Andrew was talking about Teslas this morning, and I thought it was kind of interesting. I just smiled because I wanted to use this illustration. Well, 
ah, this is probably, what are we, 2000? It's 2021. I'm thinking this has got to be six, seven years ago. There's a man in the church had gotten a Tesla. He was a bit of a car aficionado, so it didn't surprise me when he told me that he'd gotten a Tesla. And I knew that he was a generous giver, so my attitude always was, you can go buy 10 of them, and I don't care, because I know you honor God in your finances. So he told me he had this Tesla. Well, Thursday night for us was visitation night, and he was my normal visitation partner. So he didn't normally drive that thing because I think he was a little self-conscious about it, didn't want people seeing it. But that particular night, he showed up with that Tesla. And he said, come on, preacher, get out here in the car. And I looked at things. what is that? That's a Tesla. I said, it is. This is going to be good. I don't know about the visits, but this is going to be good. I mean, because, you know, I read all about Teslas and Elon Musk and all that stuff, and he's the genius that tweets too much, too. But anyway, so I get in this car, and he's showing me different facets of it and so forth, and, you know, I engage the self-driving feature and all that kind of thing, and I go, whoa, let's don't do that too long. And you sit here with just no hands on anything. And I'm thinking, okay, you have more faith than I do. Turn that thing back on to the regular thing where you're, you've got some control over this thing. And we're going down the road. And then he says to me, he says, you know, this is the fastest car, fastest production car from zero to 60. It's under three seconds. I said, yeah, I've read that. I wondered if he was going to get around to that. Because, see, before that he had a Corvette. And he let me drive that one time, and I'm going out the road, and he's in the passenger seat. And he said, pass. He said, punch it, pastor. Don't be afraid. And so I did. But I'm sitting over there, and he says, okay, I'm going to show you this. Well, then I noticed, so right here, it's a four-lane road. He stops. I think he looked behind. There was no cars, because I looked behind, too. He stops in the right hand of the two lanes going this way. He stops. And he manipulated something there on the screen where it went from normal mode, it's something like crazy mode. It it was humorous when you saw how it was worded. And I thought, uh uh-oh. And then whatever you do to make them engage, I'm thinking of Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek, engage. But whatever he did to engage that thing, I mean, and he said, get ready for this now, it's going to make you feel woozy. I'm telling you, he hit that thing and it, it took off like a rocket. And when it got up to 60 or whatever and leveled off, I mean, I know we are woozy. I'm, I'm serious. You, you should try it sometime. <laughs> it, it's much better to try it in a Tesla than it is a roller coaster. But anyway, you know, so he wanted to show me this. But you could have all that power at your fingertips, and you could be, rest, you could be reckless with it. You could be a real danger to people and yourself. That's not how prayer is. Prayer's got the power of a Tesla and more. But it's to be used as God prescribes to use it. And how is that? You claim a promise by th- like this, it's because you know you're in a specific place doing God's will, and he's put that obstacle in your pathway, and you have to pray about that because if God doesn't deal with it, you can't move forward. And to me, the quintessential example of this kind of thing is George Mueller. George Mueller didn't throw the power of prayer around recklessly. George Mueller prayed about things that were obstacles that were placed in his path Along the pathway of doing God's will and being in God's will, those children had to be fed. And so you see miraculous answers to prayer, but not because he was reckless, not because he thought that this 
these verses were just some kind of a blank check that you just went out there and threw prayer around and expected a mountain to jump out of your road, but mountains did. Because he was in God's will and he was claiming God's promises. So back to the answer to the question, how do I, how do I increase in this faith? Well, God's promises are the ground of believing prayer. He's always true to his word. And so you ask God to direct you, and I, I don't have time. I really wish I could tell you more stories about how this works and that it works. Sometime I'll have to tell you a story from W.A. Criswell's ministry about something that he really believed God wanted him to do, and the, and the deacon said, no, can't do that. And Well, I'll tell you part of it. And he had a one of his staff, they walked out one day and they looked at this place and and it was a building. It was across the street from where they were currently building. They were building an activity building over here, and this, this place is over here. It was a for sale sign, yet it was, the, it was the Central Christian Church. They put a for sale sign up. It took up a quarter of the block. This whole thing was for sale. And he walked out there, and his minister of education said to him, he said, it's a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. And Chriswell looked at him and said, it is a tragedy. It is a tragedy that we can't buy that place. And his, this is kind of humorous because his staff member said to him, he said, well, pastor, he said, why don't you ask God for it? Chriswell, this is humorous to me. Dear me, ask God for it? I thought you asked the deacons for it. And it had never occurred to me to ask God for it. It hadn't entered my mind. But he got to thinking about it and he thought, well, that is exactly what I should do. And he went back. I can't tell you exactly how all the timings of this work. He went back to his office. On a particular occasion, he was down on his knees in prayer, and the phone rang. And it was a lady in the church, and she said, Pastor, I hear you're on your knees. What are you praying for? He said, I'm praying that we could buy that central Christian church. She said, well, how much do they want for it? He said, I don't know, but I'll find out. He called her back. He said, they want such and such for it. She said, buy it. She said, I'll give you the money. But she said, you just can't tell anybody who gave you the money. I'm telling you, folks, that's what this is. This is knowing and being directed by the Spirit of God that what you're doing is in God's will and being impressed that this is what God wants and then claiming his promises. And then you have confidence in prayer. We have to go to the last thing real quick. Don't have time, sorry. But effective prayer is unselfish. Paul was humble enough to ask for prayer for himself, but he was unselfish enough to pray for others. And that's the end of this because, and we already sort of looked at this, he's already done this now. This is the third time in the book. You can look at those references, and then there's a fourth time at the very end. This is the fourth time in a three-chapter book that he's praying for these people. And if pre- effective prayer does not focus unduly on self, and this is exactly what James tells us, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Folks, we cannot be effective Christians without prayer. So why not strive to be more effective in our prayers? These are five things I think that we can be challenged from the life of Paul. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1 says, It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place. Don't miss that. As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Well, here's the thought. 
This unnamed disciple was inspired by Jesus' example. And may we, this afternoon, beloved, may we likewise be encouraged by Paul's example.